Hi everyone, this is Ida Josefina and you're listening to Reverb by Sane. Not much housekeeping today, I just want to thank everyone for the feedback and very heartwarming response to our beta launch. Really appreciate everyone who's taken the time to explore what we've built and create some thought spaces. We also have a Discord community now up and running where you can connect with other people interested in digital gardens, knowledge graphs, thinking about different ways of creating and showcasing knowledge, and many other things. And for those of you unfamiliar with Sane, go check out our website at sane.fyi and have a play around our new tool, which is a web app that allows people to collect, connect, and share ideas all in one place. The first 1,000 users are getting Sane free for a year. As for today's episode, I am speaking with Dave Cormier. Dave works on digital learning strategy and special projects at the University of Windsor. He has been running a year-long project thinking about how we can adapt our education practices to help learners prepare for uncertainty that you can check out at futurechallenges.ca. Currently, Dave is working on a book about learning in circumstances of uncertainty and informational abundance. In this episode, Dave and I talk about learning in general. We cover a brief history of knowledge when it comes to education. We discuss this ideas of the community as a curriculum, rhizomatic learning, uncertainty, the educational system's obsession with the right answers, and informational abundance, including a lot more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dave, and I hope all of you do as well. Please feel free, as per usual, to email me with any ideas or thoughts. And now I bring you Dave Cormier. I'm here with Dave Cormier. Welcome, Dave. I'm really happy to be speaking with you today. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, great. So we could get started. Uh, start. Uh, we could start with talking a bit about your background, as we normally do on these episodes uh, with Reverb. So maybe you could describe um, shortly, you know, what your professional history is and what you're currently working on. For sure. Um, so my uh, educational background starts with the letter H. Um, I started teaching uh, four and five-year-olds in South Korea in uh, 1998 uh, because I wanted to travel and I had no idea about teaching. It wasn't something that had ever even occurred to me as something I would do. And my first day in the classroom, I was like, oh, uh oh. Um, and uh, 24 years later, I'm still asking the same questions and wondering about the same things. So um started out as a, as a language teacher and then from there I've done uh, I don't know that it's every job in I higher ed but I've been in communications I've been in recruitment I've been in retention I've done uh, a bunch of special project stuff I worked in the k-12 system for a few years at a strategy level and right now uh, my title is actually digital strategy and special projects meaning I do random things at a university at the University of Windsor um, so a bunch of different sides of the education sphere, which has had a huge influence on the way that I actually do look at things from a pedagogical perspective and from a structural perspective, because I don't just see it from the teacher's perspective, but also systemically as well. So I'm interested in kind of how all those pieces come together. Um, so, yeah, I've done a bit of everything inside the system. Great. Uh, would it be too difficult of a question to ask for you to sort of summarize your position or, you know, your idea theory in a, in a short form around learning and education? For sure. There's a lot of people who would laugh at you for that question because the idea of me <laughs> saying anything quickly and succinctly is, is kind of hilarious, but I will do my best. Um, so for me, when I look at the things we're trying to do from, a, from an educational standpoint, traditionally, as knowledge is scarce, so if you look at things from whether you're looking back 4,000 years or really 
40 years, like anything past the internet revolution, we're looking at information and knowledge being scarce. So you're looking at the, prog the project of education as a way of conserving the things that we already have, a way of making sure that when I leave the educational space, I maintain some of that precious um, stuff that I went there to find in the first place. You know, so you look at uh, the universities in Paris in the uh, 13th century, you know, you're traveling a couple hundred miles from Brittany just to get to that one place where you can get access to that one set of books. And it's the only place you can find those books. Um, so you better focus on retaining the information you went there to get. Right. And my perspective is that from the last, once information starts to become abundant, once we pass that process where we're no longer conserving in an era of scarcity, the project starts to change. And the, the it's not that you don't need to remember some things. And it doesn't mean that there aren't things we should look back to and understand. It means that the project is no longer about retention. The project starts to shift. And you could argue that learning has always been this process of random exploration and maybe that's the way it is in the natural environment. And I mean, those kind of biological imperative arguments, I think, are are entertaining over a drink on a Saturday night. But I don't know that you can inform your system on it for sure. Now, the exploration process is the thing that we're actually doing anytime we try to learn something. We can go with a flick of our fingers, if we have access and we, we have sort of the, the basics of being able to do it, we can get access to information and follow those paths. And the problem is not how do I conserve it? The problem is, is how do I deal with it? Right. right. And the challenges that face us at the same time have also changed. Right. So if you look at, um, at the challenges that faced the, an average person, let's say, 100 years ago, the challenges were localized. And they came at you in a much slower way. And actually, 100 years ago is a good example because that's just when things were starting to ramp up. Or actually, 120 years ago, when you look at that transition, the start of the 19th century in, in the Western world, at least, you've got airplanes and cars and phones and, and all these things that were affecting our culture that you need to, quote unquote, know about or learn, which were suddenly an addition on what was the traditional things you needed to know just to be part of the culture that you're in. And now, instead of there being a list of 10 things I could come up with, there's a list of a thousand. Right. Right. So the things we actually need to be able to do, the skills that make us successful, that allow us to be happy, that allow us to process the incredible levels of anxiety that are existing in our culture, the things that allow us to try to make better decisions about the challenging sort of world problems that we have now, I think are fundamentally about uncertainty. They're fundamentally about dealing with, uh, you can call it Riddle and Weber's wicked problems, however you like to frame it. Complexity is another frame that people use. But that's fundamentally about that. And those things are antithetical to the foundations of the that sort of uh, post-war rigor like uh, verifiable rigor um, that so much of our educational system uh, is based on, right? This yeah. idea that somehow uh, a good education system is a verifiable education system. That verifiability that's built into that um, that process is antithetical, I think, to the skill yeah. sets that we actually need to being skillful, as Kate Bowles would say it. 
Right. I was going to ask you to give a yeah, I was going to ask you to give a prehistory of knowledge, um, but you I think hit the nail right in the head with that. So <laughs> in terms of at least our educational system. So let's talk a little bit more about the uncertainty and solutionism. You've written a lot about that um, in your blog. And I guess that is like the, if I'm correct, the main theme of your upcoming book as well. Um, do you want to open that idea up a bit more? Sure. And I mean, I can, I can open it up through the lens of how the book developed. So originally the book was about information abundance and how we deal with it as a society. Um, and so I started writing that book in the fall of 2019, um, entertaining that you start right, thinking about uncertainty right before a global pandemic. <laughs> um, and then the global pandemic hit and it occurred to me I had to rewrite the book because what I was trying to do originally was understand how abundance changed um, what it meant to learn and sort of think my way through it and sort of wrap up a bunch of the stuff I've written about rhizomatic theory and the rest of that stuff into sort of a... Uh, a non-theory, but more of a sort of everyday uh, knowledge translation view of how to talk about that. But it became really clear that what information abundance did was unveiled the uncertainty, both the the uncertainty of topic, but also the emotional uncertainty that goes along with that. And so quickly it became about thinking about uncertainty in our culture and the ways in which we respond to it. So if you look at, again, the way that we train people, uh, we end up rewarding people for getting in, in our entire school system. If you think of the school system as one of the few places where we get to train our culture in the mores or the values of our culture, the things to be valued, the idea of goal setting, you get rewarded through those uh, 12 to 20 years for getting the right answer. And implicit in that is the idea that there is a right answer and that someone else knows what that answer is. So that the journey to knowledge is to find either the person with the right answer or for you yourself to go out and find the right answer. Um, I would argue that's fundamentally opposite to the way the world actually works. And there's a whole other cross section here, which is the way the corporate world has influenced our ideas of thinking and learning. So you have this idea that uh, engineering is a really good example, right? So you've got the design cycle in engineering and while um, like science, the design cycle in engineering is not necessarily about finding the right answer. It gets taken up that way whenever it gets reduced into some kind of process that's brought into the education system. Yep. The other influence there is that with the engineering cycle, um, maybe a quick story of how this works out. So I was in, um, I was working with a government group um, about trying to find ways of dealing with complex problems inside a government. And we had a consulting group come in and use the example of Lululemon's approach to, to making uh, clothing, I guess, and how we should take on that approach. And they were talking about failing fast and doing this sort of engineering, rapid engineering cycle. The problem is, is that our problem was about healthcare. And failing fast in a healthcare environment involves humans having things failed upon them um, and having a whole process that sort of dehumanizes the both the the real life health experience of these people, yeah. but also the emotional experience of these people. And to me, there's a reductionist process. Whenever we want things to be right, we have to reduce it to something that leaves the real world complexities and all the sort of mushiness of real world life and brings us into this artificial classroom style space uh, or corporate space where success is uh, measured based on how much money we made or a classroom space where success is measured based on how much we've obeyed or or sort of processed what we were supposed to do and returned it and doesn't prepare us for that real world space. Um, and so for me, thinking about learning through the lens of uncertainty, 
and and not uncertainty the bad thing that we need to negate not the uncertainty the bad thing we need to reduce but uncertainty the real thing that's part of our lives every day should i give my child this cupcake it will make them happy uh, but it is not very healthy um, and it maybe produces long-term attachments to cupcakes that they're going to start eating cupcakes whenever they're sad the next time right. or like that's what real life looks like right there's no right answer about how doing that and my argument is like take take a, a real world problem that we deal with as citizens like the oil crisis that we're going through right now is oil bad eh. um certainly it has some really negative consequences on the environment um, is it good that oil prices have increased because it's forcing people into other areas? Well, it's an awful lot of people in my country are going to have a hard time heating their houses this winter. Um, that's real life, yeah. right? There's no right answer to any of those things. Certainly we have to deal with those. It doesn't mean we don't do something about it. But speaking of it from the perspective of it being right or wrong, the way that our traditional education system has taught us to think means that we yell at each other when we get into political discussions with each other, not have discussions where we come together, understand each other's perspectives, understand how that uncertainty affects both of us emotionally, as well as how it affects the real world actual thing we're doing, and then allows us to make um, decisions that not only are maybe better decisions, but also decisions that include the two of us in this in a way that recognizes us as humans, not in this sort of artificial corporate sense of decision-making? For me, I mean, I didn't go to university at all because I had this sort of natural, uh, I don't well, I don't know what I would call it, but I, I felt very strongly when I was a teenager, I had two sort of options. Either I wanted to go to Oxford Law School and I wanted to do it completely by the book in the most traditional institution I could possibly imagine studying the most traditional thing, or then I didn't want to do it at all. So I ended up um, not going to university, not pursuing any kind of um, formal education. Cause I, and I thought a lot about it during those years, uh, being very young. And now actually I feel completely the opposite. I would love to go into, into a university and do a sort of more uh, formal academic academic training but at that time it and I still then I still feel this way about sort of younger people in the under undergraduate areas is that is it really so that we need to train everyone in these sort of very similar institutions in very similar ways um, to sort of produce produce these like I don't know what you would call them but produce produce human beings that have been sort of taught uh, thought, uh, taught to think in a specific way taught to produce in a specific way and, and to process information in a specific way. So your ideas navigating this kind of like informational abundance and uncertainty is interesting, but what what is the specific kind of, like, do you, have, do you have an example of, you talk about rhizomatic theory and you talk about community as a curriculum. So what, what does that actually mean? Like what would, what would an educational setting that would prepare students uh, in the way that you're imagining actually look like in reality? So there's a bunch of stuff there. I'll, I'll see if I can unravel as best I can. Uh, yes, I do think that we need some kind of standardized system to be able to have people think a certain way. The reason I say that is that we have societal structures that are just not the best system. Was it uh, Churchill who said democracy is the worst system except for everything else? Um, we have systems that, and, and sort of ways of being that kind of help us getting along. And I'm not suggesting that those ways of being are perfect. I'm suggesting that without them, things get pretty anarchic. And we're seeing some of that right now where we no longer, uh, where there are ways in which we don't share some of the very simplest of societal norms that 
allow us to get along and sort of function as a group. Um, I also think that there are some basics um, that are helpful for us to see the same way. And it's, it's tough because for the, your example is a good one. Um, your example works great as long as you live in a society where most people are already doing that. So you, from the world around you, from your upbringing, from the things you've done yourself, you've been able to reach out and learn those things. But all of those other people were taught inside the system. Right. So all of the things you read online, all the books you've read, all the rest of those things are from people who were brought up through the system. Right. So if there's no system, there's none of that structure to allow you to be. So it's like, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but it's like herd immunity. Right. So you cannot be vaccinated as long as everybody <laughs> else is. Oh, no, um, I don't like this metaphor. <laughs> no, no, no. I, but it is, it is it, it works the same way. So the independent thinker who is able to go out and do that is benefiting from the rest of the system being the of way course. that it is. Um, so it's we can't get rid of that system entirely because if nobody goes, then we lose the common ground, the fabric that we use to share. Right. Right. That's not to say that I, I as clearly I don't necessarily like the way we have this system now. I think it needs to grow. Um, I don't think that I, I have colleagues who talk about burning the system down and changing it entirely. I don't. Four thousand years of human history tells us that systems don't burn down. Um, you know, we talk about the fall of the Roman Empire having a, a happening in 410 B, uh, A.D., but really it took 300 more years than that. Right. Right. It trickled on. Right. And all of these systems are hugely difficult for us to change because they're the way that we understand ourselves. So I do think we do need a system that standardizes things to some degree so that we have some way of starting. That being said, um, I do think that we have created a bunch of artifice that allow us to talk about things that are actually uncertain as if they're true or false. So we talk about, when I talk about rhizomatic learning, for instance, I talk about learning as a process in which we engage ourselves with a community of people and it's really um, becoming that the idea of learning, the idea of coming to know is actually a, a, the process of becoming part of a community, understanding how it interacts. So you can say that learning is the idea of getting a, a certificate or a diploma, but if anybody ever stops and thinks about that for any length of time, that's not actually the learning process. It's the way in which we built a piece of artifice on it to vaguely refer to the idea that somebody probably learned, right? The actual learning that's happening is not that, right? The diploma is not the learning. Yeah. It's the thing that's happening inside the person. The classroom is not the learning either, right? The, the, the learning is something that happens inside of a person as they become able to communicate inside of whatever subsection of whatever that we're talking about. So specifically, let's imagine I grew up as a lobster fisherman on the coast of, of Canada. So I'm like, I'm a stereotype to so many of your listeners about what a Canadian, particularly a coastal Canadian looks like. <laughs> Literally getting up at five o'clock in the morning and getting on a boat. Um, so if you were going to learn how to become a lobster fisherman, and I'm not suggesting that you don't, but I'm it's a safe guess that most people I talk to have never actually fished for lobster. Um, there's a way of becoming part of that community. There's a process that you would do. So you could learn how to put things in a trap, how to move the trap around, how to attach a rope to things and how to do those things. But that's not really the learning that needs to happen. What you need to understand is how to become part of the organ, the, the, the organic system that is the fishing. And that's about the way in which we work together. It's about the way in which you take instruction and give instruction and about the way that happens inside that environment. 
some of it's about the words, so trap and boat, but so little of it is actually about that. So much of it's about the way in which an organic community works together. Some of the, the benefits of becoming part of that community are that you probably won't fall into the water because you've been hit by a trap because you weren't watching. Some of the benefits are that you become more useful to that community. And also you can talk about that community, you can represent that community. So the community of is actually the curriculum. That is the thing that you're learning, right? So it's not just the thing, it's not just the rules, it's not just the, it's all of that mesh, that messy piece all together. And that's not something I can write down on a piece of paper. It's about, and it's the same whether you're talking about chemistry or you're talking about history, like it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. That becoming part of a community, you're probably doing the same thing in Barcelona right now, right? You're constantly becoming part of that community and that's a really complex community, right? Like there's a whole vibe there that's different really than anywhere else I've ever been. Barcelona has its own feel, its own pace, um, right? Its own way of doing things. And as you start to become part of Barcelona, you start to identify as being someone who lives there, not someone who's visiting there. Absolutely. And to me, all of learning ends up being like that. So if you think of learning in atomic structures, like I do this thing, I learn this thing, I learn this thing, eh, okay, there's two problems with that. So in, in learning, one of the, the theories is called mastery learning, right? So mastery learning, I learn the first section, that allows me to do the next section, and I get perfect at that, and then I do the next section, I get perfect at that, I do the next section, I get perfect at that. Couple of really big problems there. One, in order to simplify the first part, enough for somebody who does not understand, I need to lie about it. I need to imagine that things are way simpler than they are. Yes, right? that's like me learning Spanish. <laughs> right? So I need to lie about it. And then I lie about the next part, and I lie about the next part, and eventually I get to the point where I go, oh yeah, I remember that stuff I said before? I was really lying. Yeah. <laughs> and actually, language learning is a great example, right? It is. So like... You're like, well, we say that word that way, but here in Barcelona, we don't really mean it that way. Like when you say it, it's got this other feeling to it. So I think of like translating the word love to different languages. It doesn't really mean the same thing. No. It's not really used the same way. And you only really understand that if you try to use it in another language. And then you're like, oh, there's all this cultural baggage that comes along with it. But we simplify it. And then the other issue is that if you're doing mastery learning, someone else is responsible for telling you whether or not you've mastered. You can't do mastery learning on your own. Mastery learning presumes there's a master. Yeah. I'm, I'm twisting the word there because that's not what they mean by mastery. But there, it does implicitly have a master who tells you or has created a scenario in which you can then see that someone else has approved of your progress. Yeah. I mean, right? I'm com so I completely buy into the sort of everything that you're saying. I think it's... Um... Yeah, it, it's almost like common sense in a way that that um, common sense on a very sort of uh, real and deep level. But I, I mean, we talked about this last time we mm. spoke around uh, around the subject, but I have a very difficult time imagining how these sort of ideas and methods uh, can really exist on a very mass level when we're talking about educating people in the whole world in order to have a better functioning society and in order to be able to fix all of the other problems and all the other systems that we have. So how does this kind of, because it does like this, this idea of community as a curriculum and rhizomatic learning, unless it's on a very small 
small scale level with you know uh, very specific things that you're you're trying to learn. I, I assume it requires a very large amount of um, you know curiosity and sort of will will to learn and and desire to be able to navigate the world um, on your own, which I would love I would love to feel that everyone in the world is naturally like that, but it doesn't it doesn't seem like that might be the case. So do you see there being like a gap or a difficulty in in sort of applying these methods or ideas on a very mass scale? Totally. Um, so this is the way that I teach whenever I do teach. And I've taught this in, in a variety of different circumstances. So it is, it is possible. A couple of things. Uh, the first thing is in order for the, the work that I hope for to work, it doesn't have to be everywhere all the time. So like if you have, if you're in a university system and a tenth, a fifth of your classes are like this, uh, it does enough to, so like I, I remember having a student mm. come back to me, um, actually it was this spring, who said, oh, after, because they were working with me, they're like, now I understand that one professor that everybody gets so frustrated with because she never tells us what success looks like and she forces us to come up with our own projects <laughs> and then we're meant to judge whether or not our projects work and we all get so frustrated with her but she's doing the thing you're talking about and i'm like yeah yeah she's probably very lonely um but that's what she's doing so that one grain even though it was the one professor she had she was in the third year and it's the one time it had happened to her that one grain was still a seed in there yeah. So I don't need the whole system to change in order for this to be successful. And also it doesn't need to be the whole of a class, right? So like um, in the U.S. they talk about genius hour. Um, it's mostly, it's international, but it's stronger in the U.S. with that language. So it's one hour a week. And I've, I've talked to people who've done it inside their K-12 system, their K-12 classroom. And Thursdays at one o'clock, the kids are waiting at the door. They don't like it at first necessarily, but by like, Month two, the kids are at the door waiting. And they're like, okay, so this week we've talked about it. We're thinking we want to try this. And they start to slowly, like it comes, right? Because again, I've seen it happen so many times. It's in there. But, and that goes to my next point, there's a whole deconstruction part that needs to happen first. So there's a really great um, article that I use all the time called The Curse of the Teenage Learner. Um, and it... Um, talks about how so much of this is a cultural shift. And again, it's the community that's the curriculum, right? right? So it's a cultural shift that needs to happen inside of the student body, not just the faculty member or the teacher inside the classroom. You need to wait until the students come around to this process because they know you're lying. When you say that they can actually take control of their learning, they know you're not telling the truth. They know that there's a trick and they know that they're eventually going to get caught later for trying to think in their own, their own right. Right. So that's a thing they know at the start. And so I've had adults break down crying in my classroom. I, I'm a little less intense now than I was and it doesn't happen anymore, but it used to happen when I was like more like um, uh, idealistic about this. And they'd be like, but that's not learning. How am I supposed to run my own learning? You're the person who's in charge. I'm like, look, I've changed the grading structure so that doesn't exist. You can see it right there. You're literally already a teacher. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and they, and even uh, philosophically, that language of constructivism is inside the canon of education, but it practically taken to this extent inside of a classroom is something most people have not seen. 
So it is hard work and it has to happen at the, at the micro level and it has to happen in a small number of classrooms, a small amount of the time. But even that, it's the belief that it's possible that matters. Yeah. Right. So if you have a couple of teachers who've sort of gone, yeah, no, I understand that this is happening around you, but for this time, we're going to work that other part of your life. We're going to work in that thing that feels more like um, what it's like whenever you draw on your own, when no one else is watching. It feels more like um, that uncomfortable feeling you, you have and that exciting feeling you have when you're making a new friend, right? Where it's not, there are not a set of rules. You're never going to really know what it is, whatever your question might be, but you can feel your way through it. Yeah. Right. It's going to be more like those other things. But it's so, it's so interesting and it's so incredible and so fascinating. And I just, I, I'm, I feel very inspired and you know, that there is so much potential in the world when you're talking about these type of things. But like the thing that I immediately start thinking about is how little it has to do with, you know, a school or an education system or how what happens in a kid's life mm -hmm. between like 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. and how much it has to do with everything outside of that and the way that our entire societies and cultures work like as someone who's born in Lapland in Finland Finland's like a, a great country in many ways in other ways it's a uh, I had a lot of trouble especially as a teenager attending attending high school there because it felt like a very repressive system in in many ways and everything um everything that I wanted to do everything I wanted to sort of you know achieve outside of what was considered average was unacceptable and so was everything um below average so it kind of felt like the system was trying to lift everyone at the bottom to the middle and everyone at the top also back yeah. into the middle and i felt that so strongly yeah. that it well I'm, I'm i'm pretty glad because i think in the end it had sort of a reverse effect on me that i was so pissed off with the world that i was like you know fuck all of this like i am gonna do everything my own way but it could have had the exact opposite effect because it was quite repressive. And I had a lot of teachers that were quite repressive in many ways in terms of my curiosity and, and ideas. So I find that a lot of the things that you're talking about isn't, it's not because the teachers are in the school or it's not because that the teachers were necessarily, you know, educated in a specific way, but it also has to do with Finnish culture. It has to do with like, how, what, what is the sort of value system of Finland? Like in Finland, God bless this country, but in Finland, like mediocrity and being average, but being good and average and doing the things that you're supposed to do is, is, is a good thing. Um, so at least before, I think, I think a lot of the culture is changing now and it's becoming sort of more open, more international. And there's a lot of incredible people doing incredible things, but, um, at least traditionally, especially in Lapland, especially sort of in the countryside, that was very much the cultural reality. So, um, yeah, I find it very, very inspiring to think about, um, these ideas, but I, I do think that it has a lot to do with, with changing just, you know, our culture outside of work and outside of education and the way that we relate with other people in the world. Absolutely. But let me ask you a question outside of this gigantic system we were just talking about, what other leather levers do we have? I am a hundred percent interested in the thing you're talking about. But when I look across our society, the reason why I'm in education is the only lever that affects the whole culture. So if you can change the way that that works, yeah, the ripple out effect, like 
what else would you do? Like, short of becoming a, like, the only other thing I can think about in our culture is, like, movies or that kind of thing where people actually can, but even then they come and they go away. Whereas the education system, you're talking about 11 or 12,000 hours to yeah. get out of a K-12 system. Yeah. So you take that stuff that we talk about, the, the, I say debunked, it's not really, the Harvard business stuff about 10,000 hours and how it influences people being um, experts. It's, they weren't really saying that. That's the way it's been taken up. But the idea of doing 10,000 hours of anything, like there's no other thing in our culture that's that much time focused on it. So if you can adjust a little bit of how that happens and how that time is used, the ripple out effect is massive. Yeah, yeah, right? and there's, absolutely. There's nothing else you can use in a culture to make that much change. No, but I do think that there's a lot of th- you know, a lot of other cultural elements, especially just from, you know, popular culture and the internet and how that influences like you know, our relationship with, with certain things that has a lot of potential to also change certain, um, you know, aspects of how we relate with learning. I think the problem that I told you this last time, like I have such a problem with the, like the term education, educational system, or, you know, these type of terms, because for me, they have such a connotation of school and it's not just about, you know, a classroom in a school, but it's, it goes like, it bleeds much sort of further and deeper, um, than that. But I'm, you know, from my perspective, Perspective of of working on sane and thinking about the space where people are thinking about how to build like different ways of structuring information and ideas online, the way to create new ideas, the way to collaborate on existing, you know, ideas and works is a is a really fascinating community of people that I would mm-hmm. argue are completely sort of outside of what we're talking about, the educational system. Obviously, they're products of it because we all are, but they're sort of going beyond any kind of school, any kind of academic, any kind of educational environment to think about how to bring out these ideas and you know feelings within ourselves in order to to make learning that something that is a part of our identity and something that becomes sort of more fun more full of discovery and more collaborative with other people so in that sense I think that there's like cultural elements actually outside of the education system that can play a big part of it and it should actually probably and and is a bi-directional relationship with with the more um, traditional education system I, I, there's a lot of fun things happening on the on the absolute cutting edge of of this kind of stuff. The problem is, is not enough of those people vote for my tastes. Um, and at the end of the day, the work that I've done doing, like pushing the limits of what we can do in terms of the way we collaborate and the way we talk, like, and I we, I I I've tried a lot of different things. At the end of the day, even where those were successes, not enough people participated that vote for me to make a difference in my culture. Mm. So for me, while I think those things are really fascinating, I know that 99.99% of the population is never going to engage in that kind of process because right. they're too worried about whether or not they're going to be able to make the next payment on something or what like their their concerns are elsewhere. Yeah. And while it's important to have people leading those conversations because those can like you say, there can be a bi-directional relationship, but um, the sort of super projecty stuff that I've been involved in has come and is gone and has affected a couple of people's careers um, and lives, maybe. Um, but it has left me like if I can, <laughs> I can think of some projects that I was super, super proud of that did 
um, I thought, well, did the things they were intended to do. And it helped 20 people right. really change their paths. And so where I've gotten to in the work, and I think it's important that people are doing that. Where I am with the work that I'm doing is about trying to find ways. So like I, I was just talking at an educational conference um, a couple of weeks ago, and there are 400 educators there. Those 400 educators each have 200 students. So it's that rollout effect where you talk to those 400 educators. Maybe they talk to one. I mean, you're only going to convince 20 of them anyway. Let's be, let's be, <laughs> let's be honest. Um, but that 20 still has 200 right. each, right? The, the, the ripple out effect of the it's small massive. change, well, I am never going to see it, right? And that's the other thing for the work that I do is I just, I really used to struggle with, the trying to get the recognition, the, the personal emotional recognition. I don't mean like in the pat on the head sense, but that feeling of success um, that you get from a full on contact project. And now I've had to process myself through this and realize that I'm in a tug of war, right? So the there is a cultural tug of war that's been going on for at least a millennia between the scholastics and the humanists, mm. right? There's the people who want everybody to follow the rules and want to pull back in the way you described um, before Finland, that sort of doing the right thing. There's that pullback, that conservatism. And then there's that humanities tug that goes the other direction. That, that line goes all the way through universities. It goes through uh, the history of knowledge in the Western world, at least. That tug of war, I am part of thousands of people who are pulling in the vague direction that I'm pulling in right? Um, towards that um, understanding of each other, towards the idea of complexity, to human nature being this sort of marvelous thing that is really hard to deal with. And then we've got like the cognitive scientists on the other side who want to do a bunch of brain research to come up with the answer for what we're supposed to do to solve our anxieties. Right. Right. And, and so if I let go of the rope, my own part of this is not so important or whatever else that it affects it, but it is a little bit more weight on the people around me. Mm. Right. So I'm not going to solve this problem by creating some amazing software or some amazing process that people are going to do. It's the long, slow work of being on the side that I'm on. Right. Side. Obviously it's not two sides. I don't mean it that simplistically. I can't talk about uncertainty and complexity here and say that there are two sides, <laughs> but there are kind of two sides. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, before we wrap up, I want to talk a bit more about informational abundance. I sure. think I remember you sharing a really great metaphor on it um, um, regarding doctors oh. and, oh, yeah. and hospitals. And I thought that was very on point. So, yeah. What do you think about informational abundance? So that's that's in chapter one of the book. Um, Amazing. So the... Um, I man of the, the I, I said I've done a bunch of weird jobs inside of education. I managed a medical school for it was a, actually a, a campus of a medical school for a year um, through circumstances that need not be described. But anyway, I did that for a year, and so I ended up working with a lot, a lot, a lot of doctors and talking to them about the things that doctors are doing now. And I can't help myself, right? I can't help but ask, like, so what do you think doctors need to be learning now? Like, I just because that's where my brain is wired. And so, for instance, one of the things I always ask doctors is if I could give you a superpower and that superpower was knowing everything the medical community could ever know, 
and the other one was convince your patients to do what they're told, which one would you pick? 100% of the time, they choose convince my patients to do what they're told. Wow. <laughs> uh, which, again, just speaks to the, 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 the social sort of complexity inside the system. But anyway, that's not the point. Um, a lot of those doctors end up working in um, sort of random encounter stuff. So like, like emergency rooms or like consultative situations where they're dealing with new patients coming in all the time. Inevitably, now, a patient comes in knowing what's wrong with them. They're probably wrong, but they know. And they've done the research. A couple of things about that situation. Sometimes they actually do know more about the specific thing that's wrong with them than the doctor does. Sometimes, more often than that, they don't. And their conviction ends up making that conversation really difficult. But the problem gets, gets further than that because we have this expectation that doctors have learned to doctor in doctor school. So we expect to be able to walk up to a doctor and ask them a question and that the doctor somehow in their, I guess, head are going to have all of the answers to all the possible, especially an emergency room doctor. Like, it could be anything, right? There could be anything wrong with you. You may have, like, a long-term organ problem, or, like, you may have an infection. Like, it could be anything. And somehow that's supposed to be all in their head. Now, we have access to uh, all of the world's knowledge, often through a handy portable device. But if you look at a doctor looking at a phone or checking something up, somehow they have done something wrong. Right? Because we expect them to be able to doctor. Why do they need to check their phone? Why haven't they done their doctoring? And yet, if I asked you, would you want a 60-year-old doctor to be entirely dependent on the things that they had learned when they were in doctor school, you would go, no. That was like 35 years ago. Of course things have changed since then. We have this totally unreasonable relationship to what we still imagine that somehow that doctor is walking around with a cane with a little doctor bag going from door to door and somehow they contain all of the things they have in one package. Mm. Whereas seeing the information abundance for what it is, which is that doctor has access to all of this information and controlling that information is a real problem. Um, but we don't want them to do that even though we want them to do that because our relationship to um, that particular profession has not adapted. It's not grown in that way, right? They are guides. Sometimes they just know. It's true. Like, my doctor is fantastic. There are uh, dozens of things where she'll go, oh, it's this thing. Here, take this. She is so, like, so much of that is there. But yeah. she's also humble enough and to go, oh, I'm going to take me a bit. And that's and that's what you go, want, right? That's actually the most important part is for them to totally. recognize exactly when but they need to mad. seek for further information. People get mad at them for it. Mm. Ouch. <laughs> Even though they themselves think that they can go and do the searching and come up with a solution, they definitely don't want their doctor to. Yeah. But another thing that just is funny how culture isn't kind of keeping up with <laughs> the changing, changing reality. But uh, what would you say just to finish this conversation? Is there anything else that you would add or you would like to say to our audience who I think are mostly sort of curious independent learners who are nerding out on the internet doing all kinds of cool stuff um, about about this about this topic um, about rhizomatic learning about um, community as a curriculum and yeah I don't know if there's any any wise words um, you would like to say I, I think the people that you're describing have some kind of fundamental understanding that you can wander and still learn, right? That sort of nomad who goes from thing to thing and then sees connections and bring those brings those connections home. I think if 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 that audience is is the one I'm speaking to, 
So if, if I had them all in a room and I knew for sure that they were part of that group, I would talk to them about patience, right? So in about avoiding dogmatism, because mm. I think one of the problems with people on the leading edge of this who are starting to understand how our relationship to knowledge is changing is they get frustrated really quickly with people who don't see it the way that they do. Um, and there are a million reasons why people haven't made the kind of transition that we're talking about. And a lot of those reasons are super valid reasons that are about family, that are about real life. Because the real life piece that I'm talking about is also about people's real lives as they live inside their houses, as they live inside their world. And I mean, there's so much uncertainty in the world right now. For sure. Um, the cognitive load, the, the, the thinking that it takes, the space that it takes to sort of work your way to these kinds of transitions and all that sort of dealing with the unknown is hard for everybody. And it can be hard. You may feel comfortable with it in your knowledge journeys, but maybe not in your social life or your emotional, personal, private lives. And sort of it's that understanding that everybody struggles with this in some way, understanding where you struggle and what your relationship to this is and approaching people who you're trying to engage with from that position of care rather than from a position of dogmatism or idealism. That's right? that really, that's, that's, that's such, that's such a, that's such beautiful advice. I've like struggled with that a lot. I've moved around a lot in the world. I've lived in nine different countries and I've suffered from an illness of impatience uh, for as long as I can remember. And I feel like I was always leaving someplace to look for something better because I needed a different kind of like environment, different kind of people who are different thinking in different kinds of ways. And at some point I realized that, um, I'm not, I'm not gonna, it's, I'm not gonna find what I'm looking for, that it's not, I, I have completely the wrong idea of the world and the wrong idea of like what, what it means to sort of connect with people and, and connect with ideas and connect with your environment. So, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, um, very interesting. Great. Um, that's probably a good place to end here. So thank you so much, Dave. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Time. I'm a huge fan of, of your work. Um, I definitely recommend everyone to go check out your, your blog. I'll include all the details. And then when is your book coming out? Do you have a, do you have a date or at least a vague timeline for that? Paper shortages. There's probably, like, it's like everything else in the world right now. It is the timelines are uncertain. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully in the next calendar year, but it's just, it's a question of how long it makes it through the system. I'm sure it's uh, worth the wait. So we'll be looking out for that. Uh, thanks. Thank you so you. much. Yeah. Thank you. Take care now.